Roger Maddox, uh, who shared our Gideon testimony, sent me an article today or copied me on one on Facebook. And I just thought that was the coolest thing that the Gideons, was it this past summer or was it the summer ago? In June of last year, the Gideons International were in Peru, in Pura, Peru, uh, handing out New Testaments, handing out Bibles, and sharing the gospel. Uh, so I thought that was so cool to see that they were there and in that city that we've talked about so much here at Hunter's Glen. Uh, that was really neat. And there's an article if you're on Facebook and you look at his page. I think uh, I copied it on mine. But anyway, you can read about how the Gideons were sharing in that city. And you'll remember a lot of the details that are in that article because we've shared those with you over the course of the last year or so. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the subject, uh, When Does Life Begin? Uh, this is a subject, by the way, and I'm sorry I don't have handouts, so you just make mental notes or physical notes or whatever. Uh, we're we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture tonight, okay? A lot of Scripture. But I want to take and just kind of introduce the subject to you, and I think if you have been uh, watching the news, you've been paying attention to what goes on in our culture even uh, this week, uh, this is a subject that continually comes to the surface. When does life begin? Now, and, it, it, and it's always tied to the uh, issue of abortion in our culture today. Now, before I go any further and we talk about the subject tonight, I want to tell you that what I'm going to do tonight has zero political overtones, okay? My job is not to be, my calling is not to be a political commentator. My calling is to be a preacher of the gospel and a preacher of God's word. And so what I want to do tonight is not launch into some political platform, though it may appeal to a political platform. My goal tonight is simply to tell you and teach you and help you to understand what the Bible says. Because after all, it's not important what I think, and it's really not important what you think, What's most important is what God thinks. And that's where we need to come down as Christians. We don't need to say that I believe this because my pastor believes it, although there's nothing wrong with that if your pastor's teaching the Bible. Uh, we don't need to say I believe this because my political party believes it or my parents believe it or my grandparents believe it. We need to say I believe this because this is what the Bible teaches and what the Bible teaches forms the worldview uh, by which I understand everything in, in the world and the things that are around me. Remember, a worldview, in a real simple way, are the lenses through which, or the lens through which you view life. Okay, so you, you understand everything in life through the lenses or through the worldview of the Bible. And that's why at Hunter's Glen, we have a core value and one of those, we have four, but one of those core values, first one is actually thinking biblically because we want to think biblically about everything. And so as we get into the material, let me just remind you that it is important that when we talk about uh, issues that we don't want to be the source of the argument. Not, it's not about us. We want to make people argue with the Bible, okay? And it's not just enough to say the Bible says. What's important is, is that you're able to articulate what the Bible says and to show them where it says what it says. It's really easy for us to sometimes say things that maybe are biblical in their, in their, in their tone, 
But we want to show people where they're biblical in the actual writing, where the particular biblical author wrote about those particular biblical things. So we're going to talk about the subject, When Life Begins. Now, before um, I go any further, again, I want to tell you that the question is not really a question about what does the Bible say about abortion. It's a question of what does the Bible say about life, okay? And when we understand what the Bible says about life, then we also know what the Bible says about other things pertaining to life, namely where the Bible says thou shalt not murder. So the question then becomes not an abortion question, it becomes a life question, and then it becomes a question of what does the Bible actually say about life and how we're to treat life and how we're to value life and how we're to protect life and it continues to go on from there. Now, from a purely biological standpoint, and just as a, as a note to some who may not un, uh, know this, I was a biology major. Uh, I know that shocks some of you, uh, but I was a biology major in college. And in biology, we learned a number of things that biologically are factual. For example, we learned that life does begin at conception. Uh, the unborn child in the womb of the mother is a growing, living organism, okay? Now, we know that life grows. If something's alive, that it's going to grow. Um, if it's not alive, it's not going to grow. We understand that when, a, when, a, when there is a, 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 the fertilization of an egg in the womb of the mother, that it goes through various stages of cellular uh, reproduction and division. In, l in latter stages, it reacts. The, the 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 fetus reacts to external stimuli and and uh, and, and and to various various uh, external factors. It begins to uh, uh, need nourishment. Um, so biologically speaking, when we talk about a, a fetus, we know that that fetus is alive because it's growing. It's, it, it, it's, the cells are reproducing. They're dividing. It is, a, it is a growing organism. We also know that there is a law biologically, and it's kind of fun occasionally to be able to talk biology because I don't get to do that very much, but the law of biogenesis. biogenesis which states that each living thing repro reproduces after its own kind. Uh, it's a scientific biological law. What that means is, is that a tree, which is a living thing, doesn't produce a human being. Or a fish doesn't produce uh, a monkey. Each living thing reproduces after its own kind. And just thinking of it purely in a theoretical sense, the parents are alive and they are human beings. Therefore, what is produced in the womb of the mother must also be a human being. And so just from a biological standpoint, and I'm not here to be the biological expert, I am far from that, but just in a cursory look at biology, biology does really point to the fact that at conception, a life is created. And that life that is created is a human life. It is a human being. It is living, it is growing, it is developing, it goes through various stages, but it is a human being. Again, my job tonight isn't to give you a biology lecture, and by looking at all of your faces, you're like, I hope he doesn't go any further with uh, his biology uh, lack of knowledge, but um, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Here's what I want to do now. I want to walk through some biblical passages, and uh, I want to just kind of give you a biblical overview of what the Bible says. In Psalm 127, 
verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. We know the Bible, when it speaks of, of, of children, when it speaks of new life, it speaks of it in a way uh, that elevates the importance of that life. Children are a gift from the Lord. When you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, see that you do not look down, these are the words of Jesus, on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels uh, in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Again, Jesus had strong affection for, uh, for little children. Again, in Matthew 18, verse 16, Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Matthew chapter, that was Luke 18, 16. Matthew chapter 18, verse 14. Your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. And these are just a few of the many verses in the Bible that underscore how God looks at children, as God looks at new life, as God looks at his unique creation in creating uh, human beings, and particularly in children. Uh, up on the screen, here is a picture of, anybody guess who that is? That's Tim Tebow, right? And you kind of know the story of Tim Tebow. I'm not a Gators fan. Uh, nor a Broncos fan. So my job isn't really to talk about Tim Tebow as much as the story about Tim Tebow. And I don't know if you uh, know a little bit of the story of Tim Tebow, but obviously you know enough to know that he is a committed Christian uh, who loves the Lord. And that, that's a picture of him praying, and obviously he's been all over the news because of that. Here's the story of Tim Tebow. In the Philippines in 1986, Pam Tebow, that's Tim's mother, uh, contracted uh, amoebic dysentery, possibly from contaminated drinking water. Uh, she fell into a coma, received strong drugs to fight the infection, and it turned out that while she was being treated, that she was pregnant with their fifth child, and that would be with Tim. Uh, the drugs caused the placenta to detach uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the uterine wall uh, depriving the fetus of oxygen. When it was realized that she was pregnant, doctors stopped the drugs but said that the high doses of medicine had already damaged the fetus. Um, as Tim Tebow puts it in his book, Through My Eyes, he says, quote, according to the doctor, the mass of fetal tissue or tumor, which he says was me, had to go for the well-being of his mother, Pam. Uh, just as a side note, um, I'll get into that in just a second. Let me, let me kind of continue with the story, and I'll talk about this. Well, as you know, Tim actually was born. He was born in August 14, 1987, and Tebow says, the doctor said to his parents, uh, only a small part of the placenta was attached, but it was just enough to keep your baby nourished all of these months. Pam Tebow said we were concerned at first because he was so malnourished. But, but here is the question. What if the doctors had been right all along? So let's just look at it this way. What if the doctors were right? What if uh, uh, there was uh, going to be some abnormality in the birth and it would produce birth defects and, and that Tim would be born with some type of 
of uh, unusual birth defects because of all that happened to Pam Tebow. What if they were right? Should Pam Tebow have heeded their advice to do what the doctors recommended? Now, let me step back for just a moment. Let me say that's a really difficult decision, isn't it, for a parent? When they're faced with medical experts who understand and the skills that they have and a lot of the technology that they have today that wasn't available back then, where they can actually see things in the development of that fetus that uh, back then you couldn't, but today you can. We have some really dear friends that were uh, told through the scans and through the, uh, 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 the, you know, the tests that are done that their baby in, in their mother's womb uh, was going to potentially, and that's the word, potentially be born with some serious birth defects. I remember when Carmen and I had our first daughter, uh, Abigail, we were, uh, the doctor was telling us the series of tests that were available, uh, you know, to, to, to see if the baby was developing the way the baby needed to develop. And I remember uh, Carmen, she is much more spiritual than I am because she was thinking this at the time. She asked the doctor, she said, well, let me ask you this. What if you discover that there is some type of abnormality in the development of our baby? Is there anything medically that you can do to help the child? And the doctor looked at her and said, no, there's not. And so Carmen then asked the next question. She said, what reason would you have for telling us this then if there's nothing we could do to help our child? And the doctor responded by saying, and if I remember exactly his words, well, some may choose not to have the child uh, so that that child is not brought into the world, you know, under adverse physical circumstances or something to that effect. And I remember we looked at our doctor and said, this child is a gift from God uh, and we are going to have this baby. So no, we will choose not to have that test What's the reason? What's the purpose in, in having that test? I might also add, too, that one of the questions, or one of the things that people often pray is they pray, uh, Lord, may that child be healthy, right? I want to make sure, Lord, would you give them a healthy child? And that's not, there's nothing wrong with praying for that. By the way, I hope you pray for me, and I hope you pray for your family, and I hope you pray for others. Lord, keep them healthy, right? Because we don't we don't want to say, Lord, make us really miserably sick, right? We want to be healthy. But here's the thing, and I learned this from my wife again. She said, when we were praying for our children, she said, Lord, uh, you know, we, we, we would love to have a healthy child, but listen, what we want, she didn't tell God, listen, but she said, uh, she didn't say, God, listen. Uh, I'm saying listen, because that's what preachers, listen. Uh, she said, Lord, give us the child that you want us to have and that you want to create. And, uh, you know, again, I wouldn't have been that spiritual to think to say that, but it is really true. Lord, you give us the child that you desire for us to have and for the purpose for which this child was created and all you want to do in and through this child, we're simply the stewards of this child in this, in this journey. So, again, not, not wrong to pray that it'd be a healthy baby, but, Lord, every gift that you, every child that you give us is a gift. And that's what the Bible says. Children are a gift from the Lord. So what would, what, what, what would happen if the doctors were wrong, all, uh, had been right all along? Well, listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth, who makes him deaf or mute, 
who gives him sight or makes him blind, is it not I, the Lord? Sometimes God has a purpose. It goes beyond our purposes. Sometimes God does things the way that we would never imagine him doing things. To say that if a, if a child is born with some type of physical abnormality, that it is somehow our decision to be able to choose whether or not that child is worthy to live goes against everything that we know the Bible teaches about God in his creation of human life. Remember, we talked about this with regard to evil. Sometimes God has a purpose. All the time, God has a purpose in evil. And many times, or sometimes, we don't understand what that purpose is. It doesn't mean that when it's all said and done, and the curtain of history is closed, and we see things the way that, that, that as they are, the Bible says, and we see Jesus as he is, that we may not, uh, we, we will maybe and perhaps understand maybe why these things happen that we couldn't understand in our um, own limited understanding. Again, uh, God creates according to his own purposes. Okay? So let's go on to the next one. How do we answer this question? When somebody says this, I oppose abortion except in the cases of rape, incest, and danger to the life of the mother. What, what do you say? And again, this is not attempting to be political at all. I, as, a, as a Christian, I am asked this question. And I want to try to answer this question as biblically as I can. Now, I'm not that smart, okay? So I want to tell you that I am heavily dependent on uh, what I'm sharing with you tonight on uh, Randy Alcorn, who has provided an cr incredible response uh, to this. And I want to walk you through uh, what he says concerning this question, because I think it is extremely powerful and helpful. And here's what Alcorn says. Should the baby be punished for the father's sin? Don't inflict upon the innocent child rage against the rapist. The violence of abortion parallels the violence of rape. Regardless of the motive, the strong brutalize the weak. A child is a child regardless of the sins of her father. Now, I know that's not always something that readily comes to our mind, but you think about it. Even in the worst possible case, is that child any less of a human being? And we'll come to this in a second. We're going to try to answer the question. Is that child any less a child? No. And did that child have anything to do with what happened? Now, to be sure, a horrendous thing happened. And the hurt and the anguish and the pain of all that is, is imagine, unimaginable, right? But does doing one thing change the other thing? And according to Alcorn, no, it, it, it doesn't. Uh, so what he goes on to say is abortion does not bring healing to a rape victim. It does nothing bad to the rapist and nothing good for the woman. Creating a second victim doesn't undo the damage. Feminists for life, and this is a quote, say some women have reported suffering from the trauma of abortion long after the rape trauma has faded. And so the reality is, is it doesn't fix the problem, and it only compounds that problem. Now, admittedly, this is tough, isn't it? Because 
it's real life, isn't it? It's the real world. We see these things happen in real life. And we can get calloused and, and, and we can throw our shoulders back and we can talk about we choose life and, and at the same time ignore the pain and the anguish and the sorrow and the grief that a, a woman who has had to endure such a horrible atrocity is, is dealing with. We have to be careful, right? Sometimes we can, we can, for our quest to be right, run over people in the process and we're just as guilty when we do that. And so, uh, just a very helpful way to look at it. Now, let, let, me, let me, not an easy way, but a helpful way. You got that? You understand what I'm saying? This isn't, this isn't cookie cutter, cut and dry, and it all just works out so well. The ambiguities of real life create tensions that we all have to live with, right? And you know what happens? A lot of times in church, we just kind of sweep those things aside because we, all, we think everything's perfect, right? If you put in the right inputs, you get the right outputs, and that's not the way that it works. Life is, is we're sinful human beings. There's, there's, there's evil in the world, um, and we have to try to figure out in the, in, the, in the understanding of all of those things, in the big picture of all of those things, how does God want us to navigate that in a way that brings honor to him? And it, it doesn't mean it will be easy. It does not mean that it will be easy. It's not always easy. It's difficult. But God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And he is a loving and a healing and a redeeming God. And his faithfulness is new every single day. So now let's kind of circle back because I wanted to just kind of scratch where it itches a little bit. Now let's circle back for a moment and let's try to answer the question about that, that fetus, about that life in the mother's womb. Is that a human being? What does the Bible say about it? Well, let me give you a quote from uh, the, the, the birth narrative of Christ in the, in the gospel of, of, uh, of Luke. And I'm going to read an extended portion of this to you. But you're familiar with this. But there's some highlighted words that I want you to see. It says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Well, Mary's response was, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Uh, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So... Uh, she says, Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was unable to conceive is in her sixth month. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. Now just understand what, uh, what, what's happening here. Mary, you're going to conceive, okay? The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and there's going to be a life in your womb, okay? At the same time, Elizabeth, your relative, has a child in her womb who is in her sixth month, okay? So you're going to conceive, your relative, uh, Elizabeth, is going to conceive. Elizabeth's a little further along in the pregnancy, and that's what the angel says. So here's what happens. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. And hurried, by the way, is eight to ten days, okay? How's that? It took a little time to get there, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, 
the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, the baby leaped in her womb. It's the word in the New Testament that is described uh, a baby who has been born. Uh, it's also a word that describes uh, a, a fetus. Okay, so this fetus, this baby, which is clearly a reference in the Luke narrative to a life. Who's the baby, by the way? John the Baptist, right? So the baby leaps in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of the Lord should come to me as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears? The baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, just notice again, the baby is doing something. And this baby is, when is, when is uh, how far along is, is Elizabeth? Six months, right? And uh, isn't it interesting, too, if you go back where uh, Mary, uh, Elizabeth rather says to Mary, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord, she is calling the baby that has been conceived, now eight to ten days, you got that? We'll come back to this in case you're a little bit slow, right? Or I'm too fast. Or maybe I'm unclear. From when the angel visited Mary till Mary got to Elizabeth, you know, roughly eight to ten days. And now Mary's, uh, now Elizabeth's response is the mother of my Lord, okay? She's already identifying the baby, the fetus, as, a, as the Lord, Okay? who's going to be what? Born. And John the Baptist, at six months, is leaping in the mother's womb. Now, here's a little summary. After the angel left, Mary hurried to get to Elizabeth. The unborn John the Baptist, in his six month after conception, responded to the presence of the unborn Jesus inside Mary, allowing for travel. Jesus was no more than eight to ten days beyond conception when all of this happened. That's pretty, it's pretty impressive, isn't it, to think about? Um, you know, the, remember now, the Bible is not a biological book. You understand that? The Bible is not a biology book. But when the Bible speaks about biology, it speaks accurately about biology. Now, the Bible's not going to give us biological teaching like a biology book would because it's not the purpose of the Bible. But when the Bible talks about biology, it's going to speak accurately about it. The Bible's not a, a book about cosmology or science because it's not the purpose of the Bible. But when the Bible speaks about science, it's going to speak accurately about science. Now, when we speak about things, we use all different types of language because some people will say, well, you know, the Psalm 19, David says the, 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 the rising of the sun uh, it's like a bridegroom, you know, that goes across the sky, and it talks about how the sun rises, right? And everybody knows that the sun doesn't rise, the earth rotates. But when we speak about things, we speak about them, it's, it's a big word, it's called phenomenologically, the way things appear, not, not necessarily a scientific description of the way things that are. When you got up this morning, you looked at the sunrise. By the way, guys, if you get up 6.15 tomorrow and join us, you'll get to see it. It comes up about 7.10. It's a little later now uh, than it has been. But, uh, but if you 
got up this morning and looked at the sunrise, you didn't say, what a beautiful earth rotation today. <laughs> it's not what we say. We say, what a beautiful sunrise. Nobody says to you, you're speaking incorrectly about science. We don't say that. We use all different types of language to describe things. So, so the Bible is not a biological book. It's not a, uh, it's not a scientific book. Uh, it, it's a book that is written about history, and it's written to disclose to us the, the dealings of God with human history. So it's going to read in that way. It's a living book for sure, but it's going to read in that way. And yet when it addresses certain biological or or, or uh, cosmological or other matters, it's going to speak accurately about those things. So when you read the Bible, you're reading this and you're saying, what, what is understood in the narrative of Luke about babies or about a fetus? Okay, so we're just kind of extrapolating this from the text. The Bible's making just simple statements, but there's some really profound theological truths in that. Now, we know that implantation doesn't begin until six days after conception and remains incomplete until 12 days. That's after fertilization. Jesus was not fully implanted in his mother's womb when unborn John responded uh, to his presence. So, you know, some people will say, well, it doesn't begin at conception at fertilization, but the reality is, is that this was so early in the process, and yet what did Elizabeth say? How can the mother of my Lord, and then John leaps in his womb because John knew what was in Mary's womb. Again, it's not going to speak scientifically or biologically, but boy, it sure does, as Alcorn points out, make a really clear uh, case for how the Bible views it. So here we go. In Luke 1, a fetus named John responded to the presence of a blastocyst, which is a pre-embryo, named Jesus. Okay? I mean, there you go. There's your biological understanding of, of Luke 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is John 1, 1 and 14. I was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. For we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only who became, uh, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see what John says? Looking back at the birth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word became what? Flesh and made His dwelling among us. Again, goes back to the birth narratives. So here's a question then. When did the Word become flesh? When did He leave heaven and come to earth? And the answer is at conception. Christ's incarnation came nine months before Christmas, right? Nine months before Christmas. By the way, Jesus didn't come into existence. We've talked about this before at Christmas. Christmas is the incarnation. It's when God became flesh. Jesus didn't have his beginning at Christmas. Jesus always existed. The Word was God. The Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word. So you go all the way back to eternity past, which doesn't even have a beginning. Jesus existed. And, and so, but the word became flesh, the incarnation, conception, the birth uh, at Christmas. Scripture repeatedly shows life begins before birth. Uh, here's a couple other, uh, a number of other examples. The babies, Jacob and Esau, jostled each other within her. Uh, that would be Rebecca in Genesis chapter 25, verse 22. 
um, Hosea 12.3. In the womb, he, being Jacob, grasped his brother's heel as a man he struggled with God. Again, uh, Hosea chapter 12 and verse 3. In the womb, Jacob grasped his heel. And then later, as a man, remember he had that at pineal. He, had the, he wrestled with God. Jacob was every bit of Jacob in his mother's womb as he was when Jacob was a man. How about this in Job chapter 10, verses 8 and 12? Hey, just as a, just making a note of this, I went, just curiosity, because this is such a prominent discussion in our culture today, right? Presidential candidates are all talking about it. So I just, I just kind of went on, on, you know, the, the know-it-all, Google, right? And I, I Googled, when does life begin? And then I clicked on news, and you'll see everything you probably watched on TV and all the interviews and all the stuff. And there are a lot of people that are coming out and are, they're, uh, they're responding to this. And a lot of the verses, in fact, all the verses that I'm sharing with you tonight, you'll find people responding to uh, also on, uh, on, uh, on, the, on the news. But here, here we find in, uh, in Job, uh, and again, Job chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, your hand shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Job is, again, talking about his conception. Did you not clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together. This, by the way, is Psalm 139. You created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. One of the most precious psalms, right, we, we love and know. Again, what does God say? He says, I created you before you were even born. Now, if you're curious about that, how about Jeremiah 1, 5? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Again, Jer remember Jeremiah, he was really questioning God, you know, am I capable to do what you're asking me to do? It, it's a big task, you know, and God said, hey, I've got this if you'll just trust me, because even before you came into uh, existence as a human being, my hand was fashioning you. God knows what he's doing. There is no life that is invaluable, right? Every life is, that's not really a good word. There's no life that lacks value. Every life is valuable to God, and every life matters to Him. Um, Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Any parent in here want to say amen to that? Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Original sin, you know, I was born into sin. But from the time of my conception... I was a sinner, all right? He's, of course, speaking about, um, about his, uh, uh, the reality of, uh, of, of, of being a human being. This is interesting. I'll just throw this up there. Again, Alcorn is, is, is kind of helped with this. 
just think about the way culture looks at things and how sometimes it's uh, a little contradictory. Pregnancy and alcohol do not mix. Drinking alcoholic beverages, including wine, cool, wine coolers and beer during pregnancy can cause birth defects. Um, so, you know, and you have the picture there of this sign that was posted somewhere, and then you've got the baby. And, you know, even our culture, it kind of speaks in, 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 both, in both ways. Is this, is this a life? Is, it, is this a baby? Uh, is it not? You know, um, what, what's happening in, in, in the womb? How about Genesis chapter 9, verse 5? And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. From each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. You know, it's really easy, isn't it, for sometimes for us to say that the church's responsibility really isn't to talk about this issue of life. Uh, <clears throat> conception, what the church ought to do, and I heard this last night, by the way, on, uh, on a news show in an interview. Basically, the person was saying, you know, the church really doesn't need to get all wrapped up in this, this discussion, right? It's a biological discussion, not a, not a theological discussion. What the church needs to do is they need to look out for the least among these in the, in the world. I heard somebody saying that. Well, Genesis 9-5 says, you know, you're absolutely right. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. From each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Remember, for us, the question is, when does life begin? How does God view the fetus? And then the question then becomes, that fetus is a human life. How are we to treat life? And what does the Bible say? We're to value life. Every life has dignity. Every life deserves, especially the least of these. And the least of these is, is who? The unborn. Based on statistics in our culture, I've heard it said that the most dangerous place to be in our culture is in the womb of a mother. Um, it's uh, it's, it's a, a reality that I think sometimes we, we fail to acknowledge. Um, so, Deuteronomy 19.10, Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. Don't shed innocent blood. Do we look at the life of, an, of a fetus or the life of an unborn child as innocent blood? We should. The Bible tells us to do that. We're to defend life and to do all that we can to, to, to defend the least of these. Psalm 82, verse 3, defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Um, you remember, has anybody, let me go back, has anybody had a chance to go to, uh, if you've ever been to Israel, go to the Holocaust Museum? Have y'all ever done that? Or have you ever, some of y'all, have you ever visited there's some here in the United States, have, 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 um, not one, like there are in Israel, but you know, you go to an exhibit and you see the atrocities of the Holocaust. Um, one of the things that I remember experiencing when we went to the one in Israel is you walk in and there are, you know, thousands of people that are that are visiting that museum, and you could hear a pin drop. Uh, it, we just remarked that how quiet and, and solemn it was. And when you go into that room and you see the names and you see the shoes 
and you see the pictures and you read about the atrocities of it, um, you know, it's just, it's just moving and gripping. And just as a side note, you know, if you've ever been to New York City and you've been to the 9-11 memorial, I think the same reaction is there. You walk through and you just, you know, the, today's 9-11 and, you know, I hope we never forget the sick feeling we all had that day. Uh, never, you know, I was thinking, I was watching today, I know many of you may have done it, I was watching some videos today just of that day and some of the things that have come out. And I just, I'll never forget the sick, sick feeling I had in my heart, you know, about all that transpired. And the reaction that people had at 9-11 and a lot of people have today concerning the Holocaust is, um, well, at 9-11 for sure, I don't want this ever to happen again. What can I do so it doesn't happen again? And you know, that's one of the reasons why America all came together. You remember that Sunday after 9-11? I mean, it was one of the most powerful in, 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 a, in a strange way, right? Sundays that I've ever experienced in, in my Christian life. To see, you know, all the differences were set aside and, you know, the church was full and we were all just seeking the Lord and grieving for the loss and and yet there was this, this agreement among everyone in the room that we had to do something to secure uh, the future of our, our country and our children and all of that. And, and so, but there was this desire to want to do something. And then I go back to the Holocaust Museum. You know, people look back at that and say, how did we, how did we, how did the world sit back and allow it to get as far as it did before somebody did something, right? And you hear that statement over and over again. Why didn't we do something sooner? Why, did, why didn't we do something sooner? Um, well, the truth is, is that when we look at the atrocity of what's happening in the taking of innocent lives in, in abortions today, it, it's almost like we just don't pay attention to it. And when we stop and we really think about what God thinks about life, you know, Adoption is real, right? If you don't want the child, there are people who do, right? There are, there, there are people who, 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 who will, I think of Luke Anderson, our associate. Did, I need to bring him the picture. Luke and his wife adopted a baby who was born that day in Galveston. Was it Galveston? Galveston. Um, and... Uh, you know, that baby was born, and there was a lot of situation with the mom and all that, and they adopted that baby. So uh, we, we need to show the picture. It's a beautiful picture of, of them. So the reality then is, what are we going to do, right? Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And then, lastly, the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So, yeah, the church needs to defend the poor and needy. It needs to defend the defenseless. Um, and it needs to begin with the unborn and say there are options, there are alternatives to this. Because so far as we understand the Bible does talk about life beginning at conception. And just as a note, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that life begins at breath. 
The Bible does not teach that. The only reference to that in the entire scripture is going back to the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve and he said he breathed into them the breath of life. That is descriptive of a unique event that happened in the creation of the first two people that God put on the earth. It is not proscriptive of how the process of conception and birth happens. It's descriptive, not proscriptive. Once you move out of the Garden of Eden, you find no example anywhere in the Bible about that. But what you do find is the repeated references, as we've talked about, to how God values life and how life is important. And so what do we say when somebody says, when does life begin? You have a lot of places to take people and say the Bible talks so clearly. And listen, take the Luke narrative and, 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 and spend some time uh, reviewing it and looking at it. But the Bible really paints a, really cl a very clear picture. Now, before we dismiss, and you know, it's great that my watch is broken because I ended early. Uh, do, do you have questions or, 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 or observations that we have a time to, 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 to entertain some of those? If you don't, it's certainly okay. We, I can, we can, yeah, this is all based on Alcorn, and uh, I, we can make, actually, we can make these available to you. I'll have copies for you. Would that help? Yeah, it's a message. This is based on a message that Randy Alcorn preached like eight or nine years ago, uh, and it, it may actually be on his Eternal Perspectives, uh, EP... M, Eternal Perspectives Ministry site, um, where he has the, the, the sermon, actually, that's based on these notes, and also based on, um, and there's also, and I didn't put them all, there's some graphic pictures that he puts as well uh, to, to do this, so I cut out a, a good number of, yes, yes, very, very helpful. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Well, and, you know, if you think about it this way, what, what is the goal of our enemy, Satan? What's his goal? What is his, what is his, what is his mission statement? To kill, to steal, and destroy. Right? And so... What you're going to hear from our enemy is going to be very different than what you hear from God. Now, what our enemy also is, is he masquerades as an angel of light, right? And so he doesn't tell you the whole deal. And he masks it in certain descriptors that, don't, that, that, that mask the real thing that's going on. You know, uh, it's health care or it's... You know, uh, it's, it's our right or whatever. And it makes it sound, hey, that's right. It's, it, this isn't it's none of my business. This is a per particular person. And, you know, ultimately we're all responsible to the Lord for what we do. But our enemy doesn't want it to call it what it is. Right? Because as it has been said, the devil always pays in counterfeit money. Right? He always pays in counterfeit money. So he always offers a whole lot. You know, I always say, Satan's like rice cakes, you know. 
you go on a diet and you're going to eat a rice cake, they promise to fill you up. Have you ever eaten one of those? It tastes like a sponge and it does nothing to satisfy your hunger, but it makes you think it's going to help you. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I believe the devil, that's the way he responds, and, and, and you know, to, to that. He doesn't want us to see it for what it is. But again, I want to just be really clear on this. It's easy to throw shoulders back and run over people who are walking through a crisis in their life, who, who, who don't understand the truth that we understand as Christians, that don't have the foundation that we have. And we have to understand that we've got to look at them as human beings who are walking through the ambiguities and the struggles of life and try to help them. Not everybody wants help. But I also will say this, that there is no sin that is the unpardonable sin apart from the unpardonable sin. And abortion is not, and divorce is not, and we go through all that list. That God redeems, He forgives, He is a God of grace, He's a God of compassion and mercy. He can take, as, as, as uh, I was told all my life, God can take lemons and He can make lemonade. Um, Sometimes it's a little bitter, the lemonade, but he can take it and make it into something that is sweet. And he does that in people's lives. And we have seen that over and over again. But we have to, we have to walk with grace and, and be grace-filled people and, uh, and understand that. So, yeah, good, good, good comment. Good comment. Well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time just to look tonight. Um, we thank you for the clarity of scriptures that just, it just laid out for us.